medicine, climate change in our future, everything depends on energy. We use it to drive us, we use it to heal us. This is The Coefficient Life, and we sit down with the smartest scientists, futurists, and thinkers on the planet to discuss the big ideas around energy in all its forms and ask the questions you wish you could ask them. I'm your host, Anthony Salomon. And I'm your other host, Kim Brooks. Anthony and I are here to bring you stories that are shaping the future of our planet. Now let's dive on into a universe of energy. From the Podcast Bureau, this is The Coefficient Life. Nuclear proliferation. It's something we think we know about. But what are we doing to track nuclear material across the globe? And how are we using some of that same tech to measure our daily exposure to the radiation of the universe that surrounds us? We are joined by Anna Erickson, an MIT grad who is passionate about nuclear proliferation. Anna holds a PhD in nuclear science and engineering, and her research is focused on bridging the gap between reactor engineering and nuclear proliferation communities. Anna is also the director of the Consortium for Enabling Technologies and Innovation, sponsored by the U.S. Department of Energy's National Nuclear Security Administration, where she works on using machine learning, advanced manufacturing, and detection technologies to further the nuclear proliferation agenda for the United States. Anna is also the co-author of Active Interrogation in Nuclear Security, and we got to sit down with her recently for a brief discussion about nuclear proliferation, what the NSA is doing to track and monitor nuclear materials across the globe, and how some of that tech can be used daily to make our lives better. How are you? How have you been doing? Doing well, doing well. How about you? Good. I've been doing hearing good things. As doing well, so. <laughs> hearing good things from you all, as always, and your students. Graduating. What else can I say? <laughs> You're doing well. Number 10 this month. So. Wow. Number 10 graduation. Number 10 PhD. PhD. I don't count masters anymore. Oh. <laughs> but we don't tell them that. <laughs> well, we hope they turn in, decide to turn into doctors, right? Yeah. Well, this is a thing. It's uh, once they out of my group, they're probably not going to go to doctorate, you know, because I always hire students with the intent to get them through the doctorate. Absolutely. But the success rate of conversion is maybe 50%. That's probably right. Yeah. You probably have a higher rate than some people do. Well, I am very picky at home. <laughs> so, but yeah, it's it's common. Students lose interest. They want to go get a job. Yeah. Know. Why do they want to do that? I don't know. <laughs> it's not like you live in something besides a hovel. It's not like we get four hundred one k here either. You know. <laughs> Too funny. But uh, yeah, to give you an idea of uh, what we're doing, Ken and I are, are, uh, are starting a podcast called The Coefficient Life. Cool. And talking about all things nuclear, from medicine to other applications, energy, everything. Security. So, what's that? Security. 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 <laughs> so you have an expert here in other things. Yes. Might be other things. Exactly. So that that was going to be my first question, is to <laughs> sort of tell me more about what you do and what you focus on. So this is a good question. I think, Ken, you've probably seen my presentations enough times now, right? So... I it's um that's why I wanted you to be talking to him. <laughs> <laughs> so nuclear engineering is such a broad field, but people typically focus on reactors, right? right. It's fission, fusion, and then they forget that there's a whole other world outside of that. When I look at nuclear engineering, to me it actually spans the entire fuel cycle, including the safeguards, non-proliferation, instrumentation, etc. So reactor is actually quite a small part of it, right? We have all the other steps that we have to consider when it comes to nuclear. 
And it's both for economics perspective, for security, like I mentioned, but also benefit to the society in general. Because if you look at the reactor alone, it's not just an energy producing machine. It can also be configured to produce radioisotopes for medical applications. It can produce hydrogen, heat, etc. So, so in my group, we look at uh, nuclear as a holistic picture, and we actually cover quite a few different aspects of it. So my latest project is uh, sponsored by an NSA. Steve may have mentioned that it's a $25 million consortium. To answer the question of when it comes to nuclear non-proliferation, which is still one of the biggest threats we face, not to make any less of climate change, of course, that's an existential threat on its own, but nuclear proliferation is a big deal, right? So what are the tools that we need to create on the technology side to enable the next generation non-proliferation? So we're looking at it from a perspective of general tools, right? So question is, how does machine learning and big data can help us to gather and analyze data and make predictions or conclusions? Additive manufacturing and all associated aspects, how do we approach that? Because 10 years ago, additive manufacturing, such as 3D printing, was somewhat futuristic. Now I have three of them just sit in my lab because I'm too lazy to go to the machine shop to do things. <laughs> it's actually more, more cost-effective for me to do it in-house. Yeah, like, I mean, absolutely. My brothers make uh, props and costumes for movies, and they have a room about this size, and they have probably 5, 10, 12, 15 machines in there, mm-hmm. and they're just going 24 hours a day, seven days a week making stuff. Exactly. It's <laughs> so much easier anymore. But now that we're so familiar with it, right, what if we take it one step further and start 3D printing reactor components, which Oak Ridge has done, right? They 3D printed almost an entire reactor system. Wow. Out of metal, different metals, etc. So <laughs> pretty amazing. <laughs> and then I mean, given the scope now, we've seen people 3D printing homes, right? So things are getting up to the scale. And the question is, where are we with safeguarding these technologies? Now you can take it one step further and say, okay, if I need to 3D print a prop for a movie, I can go download some CAD file, right? I don't have to create it myself. There's a maker community out there. Sure. Yeah. So, so far, we haven't had any issues with maker communities, right? But files being shared so freely, how do you know that sensitive technology is not being shared on the web? Yeah. Etc. So, So, those are the questions that we're raising now. And it's from a standpoint of, you know, what type of technological sensors would we need? What signatures do we look for? What type of activity would be suspicious, right, at every level? So things that we didn't even think about 10 years ago because it wasn't relevant. <laughs> and then the third aspect of that consortium is, look, we can do things like 3D printing. We also do nanotechnology. So how do we bring this into the modern era of instrumentation sensors, in particular embedded sensors? Is there a reason why our phones do not have a radiation monitor on them at all times, right? And that's actually useful for us as individuals, especially people that fly a lot. Yeah, yeah. There are people that are very sensitive to skin cancer. So why can't we monitor them at all time UV exposure? UV exposure, exposure yeah, yeah. right? So all these questions that we can have on the humanitarian side also apply on the nuclear side. Why do we have those bulky sensors? I'm sure, I think I overheard, I'm sorry, it's... Steve is very loud. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he brought the Geiger counter, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I heard the, the, the talking about it. Yeah. So, 
do you really want to carry this thing around or would it be more convenient to actually just have it embedded just in your, in your phone, in the back of my phone? Uh, and you will never know. And that's a better electronics than that. Than that oh, for sure. <laughs> and we are producing those. And if you're interested, I can always take you by our lab and actually show you what it looks like because it's incredibly small. The um, nanostructure devices we produce that are highly sensitive to both UV and X-rays and protons. That'd be great. I didn't know. Um, yeah. We can make them small size, like size of a pixel on your computer screen. Wow. And the integration is so seamless, they consume almost no power. So you just make sure that instead of three cameras here, you'll have uh, instead of have this. A little, have a little dot. Exactly. Little, yeah. Um, well, like a PNX, the front camera, little dot there. Off you go. All right. This is just an example. Obviously, a lot of this idea is a lab-based right now. It takes a village to take them out of the lab and into the real world. Of course, yeah. But... We're prototyping them, right? Yeah. So we are showing... That's where it starts. So, so I mean, talking about that, you know, you say it takes a village, but it also takes, I would think, major companies wanting to to add that as a feature. Right. If Google did it for their phones, then Huawei might do it for theirs or Apple might do it for theirs, you know? And then I'm sure it takes a lot of talking to these companies to say, hey, we think this would be a benefit to mankind. Yeah. Put it in the device. <laughs> Unfortunately, this is what the academics are not good at. <laughs> this is well, what I'm saying. It's a very good point there, though, Stephen. <laughs> because and the, it takes a little bit of a different of mind mentality. Yeah. You know, Theranos comes to mind, not to mention unmentionables here, but, you know, nobody wants to be in that position. We've seen examples of companies yeah. overselling, overpromising. Part of the reason why I don't like to it is because... It works in a lab. I don't know. Yeah, it takes right. a lot of prototyping, like I said. So this is, uh, you know, an iPhone now. We came a long way from Commodore 64, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's very good. It's very good. Yeah, we've come a long way from being able to just play Pong, then have a supercomputer that takes up, you know, a whole building. So now I try to explain to my kids all the time that now you have the whole of human existence in the palm of your hand. Right. Everything we've all, we've ever learned or ever known, you can now access from the palm of your hand, and everything we will ever know will become available in real time. Yep. So it's a fascinating era. But like I said, it, it takes a village to get the technology out of the lab and actually go ahead and do it. I don't know if uh, Steve talked about the reactor project that he's leading here, Nextra on you know molten salt reactors yeah, the fast reactor yeah you have to get an investor to basically put a faith on you and say okay i think you'll deliver here's the money to do it and it's uh, you're absolutely right and even before you get to the large companies you got to pick some interest people to do it it's all about what's the benefit to overall humanity not just like a small group of individuals right. i mean i can imagine for companies it's what's the benefit to our bottom line right, right. you know if we have this if apple has this and google doesn't will we sell more iphones Right, and then there's different levels of demand, of course. There's a, you know, military and army, they always care about things like that. So the question is, how do we even implement it with them? they yeah gone through a number of technologies. I can give you some examples. Uh, government invested heavily into wearable technologies where the sensors would be embedded. Yes. But to be honest, they're still focusing on the older models of technology. They need to move into, you know, more... What can be done in 21st century? Forget about things that we developed 40 years ago, right? Yeah. So nuclear has an interesting vibe to it, right? It's uh, we like older technology because the proven, rel reliable, etc. Because of you know implications of having something wrong. Yes. On one hand, 
but also a lot of it had to do with the dip in public and government interest, a huge dip just back yeah. what, 15 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we were talking, uh, Stephen and I were talking about how nuclear has done a great thing of sticking its head in the sand mm-hmm. and being like, just don't talk about us, we're over here. Right. Just let us do our thing because the conversation has always been around when people think of nuclear, they think of weapons and they think of meltdown disasters. Exactly. They don't think of everything in between. So, yes, they were saying that, you know, so we stuck our head in the sand for a long time yeah. and said, don't look at us, just let us do our thing. <laughs> right. It's like... If we don't make any noise, then nobody's bidding us up because it's so convenient. Yeah. But then there's a whole other aspect of nuclear nowadays, right? So I'm sure he talked about the civilian side and this new interest in reactors, etc. There's a whole new zoo of reactors. But now the space exploration cannot happen without nuclear. Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, recently got, well, it was also recent, tw- beginning of 2020, I guess, a junk position at the airspace. I haven't seen our board in probably two or three years now, so I'm giving him updates. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I see you. Because she was out for COVID. Yeah. Well, you, you, had, you had a child too, right? Or you, uh, you had a child a while Almost six years ago. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> so a little while ago. I have a seven-year-old too. Oh, good. I have an eight-year-old and a five-year-old. She's I, have, I have a seven-year-old and an 11-year-old. Well, so you know. Yeah. <laughs> Homeschooling, yes. I think you were, you're COVID, you were, I meant to say that you had children home to worry about it. Oh, yes, You didn't yes. want to contaminate and all this. And so. Well, that and uh, we got new faculty, so it yeah. was very important that you get to meet the new faces too, so which I take credit for, Shaheen. You do, yeah, I know. You did, you did, you did very well. You get kudos for that. I was for mentor at Texas A&M. Uh-huh. She <laughs> just brought her own. She's new faculty this fall coming yeah. in now. But her protege. But anyway, you were saying you update him on your what you got in 2020. So I have now an adjunct position at airspace for that reason. I went in and I pitched to them. I said, you know, let me tell you what the nuclear can do for you. The nuclear can do for you a lot of things. Number one, there's a huge interest in reactors, not just the thermogenerators, but also the actual reactors. There are a lot of activities going on at Los Alamos National Lab, Crusty Reactor. So the Real reactors going into space. This is how you power things. Forget about anything else. Right. There's no uh, renewable right. <laughs> on Mars or the moon except for solar. That we know, right? <laughs> that, we know, that we know of. So we do know that. There is on Titan, maybe. Moon's got some helium-3 that I really want to get my hands on. Yeah. <laughs> so I said that there's the reactors, right? And you will want them, period. Yeah. Not just to power missions, but also to have them stationary wherever you are. Then there's radiation. You know this little thing that affects astronauts, electronics, mm-hmm. equipment in general, you know, shielding. Yeah. You want to measure that, and none of you know how to do it because, you know, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because you all claim that payload is the most important, so why bother getting those bulky radiation sensors with you? Because we have such limited payload, right? So, again, nanostrike sensors could be very yeah. useful in that, embedded with your electronics and monitor those in real time at all times. And then the third one I told them, you guys may not want to do it, but the fact that we have a whole monitoring of nuclear weapons and nuclear events in space, you can't escape that. I mean, this is a national intelligence, this is DOD, but they they, they, work, they work with airspace to do that. Airspace Corporation comes to mind, you know, there are a couple of other companies. So you need to be part of that, you know, it's holistically speaking yeah. of airspace. So they, you know. So are they monitoring 
the weapons in orbit or are they monitoring the building of weapons on the ground from orbit? Oh, or good both? question. Now, so they specifically looking at the signatures of nuclear explosions, yes. etc. There are multiple layers of how they monitor that it goes anywhere from the telelight to ionizing radiation to to just overall heat maps of things. So as far as your question about on the ground, that, that's a satellite job. So there are specific satellites that actually do that. And I can talk for another hour about that, <laughs> the nuclear security part. So that's the space part that we should not ignore. miss and ignore. It's critical, it's important, and especially this new space force. I know we don't have a lot of time, so I'm going really fast. And <laughs> you can digest and let me know what you want to follow up with because, you know, my portfolio is, you know, it's pretty broad. Yeah, <laughs> it's very, very broad. It's yeah. the broadest probably of everyone. And then the final thing I'll mention, which also started just a couple of years ago, we've established a new certificate between nuclear engineering and Semnan School of International Affairs. Semnan is one of the sponsoring people through NTI, right? So Nuclear Threat Initiative. It's a big nonprofit organization. They're very influential. They're based in D.C. And they basically look at all aspects of nuclear as far as proliferation issues. So we've established this new certificate to educate our students on two fronts of, you know, that are, should be relevant. First, if you ask any nuclear engineering student that graduates about, you know, what policy means or what the differences between non-proliferation or safeguards, you just get a stare. You know, it's like, they're the same thing, like non-proliferation, safeguards and security, all the same thing to them. It's amazing. <laughs> you get the blank stare back, huh? No, yeah. More often than you think. So it's just a side note. Almost every PhD from Can my you group... hear my blank stare? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything. I heard it. So. You, heard, you heard it. I'm glad. I'm glad. We all heard the blank stare. <laughs> you can cut the tension with a knife here. I know. <laughs> You're a grad student already. <laughs> there you go. It's one of the qualifications is blank stare. It's just being able to blank stare there when you, you ask like, the simple questions. <laughs> well, this should be a relevant question. I'll tell you why. Yes. Anyway, so just to dive into why there's a big difference. So non-proliferation is basically, how should I say that? It's not necessarily a physical system. There's a security, that's physical systems. Safeguards actually encompasses both physical systems, including instrumentation, as well as the implementation of that methods. Non-proliferation is the aspect of it, or more on a policy level. Yes, it considers technology, but more of a, you know, monitoring technology, making sure things, making sure we stand ahead of things. It's not a physical protection, such as gates, fences, security guards. It's the concept. It's the idea. Well, it's a little more than idea. It's it's more like, okay, so going back to 2006, I guess, how do we re- verify that North Korea shut down its reactor that was used for enrichment? It's not physical protection because it's up to them. It could be, it's not safeguards because safeguards is for existing technologies and fuel cycle, right? How do you prevent people from misusing things? It's this aspect, right? Or how do you verify that Iran shut down half of the centrifuges? Right. That's non-proliferation part. Yeah. It's very different from the other. And it, being able to understand these differences is actually quite important because <laughs> how we approach both implementing various aspects of it, non-proliferation, safeguards and security, but also the tools political aspects that would play a huge yeah. role here. Yeah, yeah. So policy here is incredible. Like, I can overstate that. If you're a nuclear engineer interested in non-proliferation, and if you don't understand the policy, don't claim you do non-proliferation. They're not separable. 
In fact, I'm going to go as far as to claim that all of my technology advancements that I can develop here will all be irrelevant if you don't have policy in place yeah, that actually right. can implement it. So I can just cross myself out of non-proliferation if I don't have policy. It's very, very important. But then, you know, you take the other aspect, who makes the policy? Well, that's the question, right? Are they, do they understand the difference between molten salt reactor and centrifuges? Well, probably a little bit. But, you know, my point is, yeah. there are a lot of intricate details that yeah. the policy people should really try to understand. And this is the certificate that we created to basically merge the two communities yeah. and make sure that, at the very least, they speak the same language. Yeah. So, I mean, this stems back to something I say all the time. You know, in Australia, we have a lot of roundabouts. Yeah. And uh, I used to say, whoever invented the roundabout has obviously never driven a car. <laughs> 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 but it's day-to-day policy, right? We have this thing to control traffic, but exactly. the person that invented them has never driven around one. <laughs> I know, they started doing a lot of them in Alaska. And yeah. actually, we go to Alaska almost every summer. Actually, works really well there. Because uh, I don't it's a nice place to go this summer in Alaska, you know, yeah. humidity. It's yeah. Nice. But that, but to your point, it's like, are the people creating the policy, do they have the knowledge of physically understanding the difference between A and B? Exactly. And how A impacts B? And that's the question. It's like, how do we raise the next generation of policy makers that actually have good understanding of non-proliferation from the technology standpoint, not just policy implementation? Right. So we had our inaugural course, actually, this spring a course that's based on lectures from experts more than anything else, right? So me and my co-conspirator, Rachel Woodlark, here at the Semnan School of International Affairs, so we co-piloted the course and we invited quite a few experts to come and speak on things. One of them was monitoring through satellites. There are a few were on, you know, emerging reactor technologies and what the implications are. We went all the way from very large to micro-reactors and how they would be graded and, uh, you know, how would that affect our policymaking day-to-day managing those reactors. Because, I mean, people talk about decentralization of grid, right? So what's the policy implication of that? Good question. Exactly. <laughs> Especially, you know, when Texans are very big on nuclear power all of a sudden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you manage that? I mean, do you put two big reactors? Do you put 15 small reactors? What does it even look like and what's the policy like? So there's a lot of discussion on, on this front. We had four different sections with multiple topics, and I'm happy to share a syllabus if you're interested to look at it. I'd be fascinated to say it, yeah. All recorded lectures, and uh, we, you know, we can share the recordings with the permission of the lecture, of course. So fascinating course, and we started it again this spring. Awesome. Feel free to enroll if you want. I mean, we have guests <laughs> yeah. there all the yeah. time. Actually, last spring I had people all the way from high schoolers to faculty members taking that course. So I had an audience that was pretty broad. Yeah. And how, how long does the course go for? It's, it's a semester long. We meet twice a week. So we're going to do a bit of a different configuration this year. You do it virtual too, though. You do it remote. Right. So we're going to do hybrid again. You just come in on, on, on the Zoom. Yeah. So some, some of the speakers obviously wouldn't be able to travel. So we're going to have a hybrid where people can just connect over Zoom. It worked well last time. So some of the other aspects that we're going to add to it is inverted uh, classroom, meaning that some of the pre-recorded lectures we're going to reuse and ask students to watch them ahead of time. And instead of spending 30 minutes on discussion, we'll have an hour and a half, which is what what we lacked last time. It was like really, really annoying to have to stop the debate at 30 minutes and go home. So we're going to try to do a bit of that. 
this semester. Yeah. Anyway, so I just gave you, I guess, enabling technologies and innovation, additive manufacturing, machine learning. Yeah, so policy. Much, so much to talk about. Um, space. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I'm there's, there's so much we could... Uh, we we'll, we'll even have a culinary school that you can operate. <laughs> I do it every day, 5 to 6 p.m. Okay. <laughs> Feel free to talk in. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's so many different things I'd love to follow up with you on. I mean, space is like my personal passion, so I'd love to talk, you know, forever about that. But yes, there's, I, I mean, I can think of at least 10 things that come to mind that I would love to. Yeah, fantastic. I'm happy to send you the slides I presented at Airspace when I interviewed. We have to formally interview for the adjunct sure. positions. So. Yeah. So I gave them a presentation during the seminar so I can share that. Amazing. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So last semester, I also offered a new course on space dissymmetry. So I had six students. Okay. And demanded to have that again. And I bet, yeah. I broke them into two groups. One group studied a health physics aspect of it, so personal dissymmetry and how do we even calculate the dose for the astronauts? Because right. the current models are pretty limited. And then the second one looked at the irradiation of electronics, specifically the oxide layer, which is what contributes to the failure of a lot of the MOSFETs and FET type of products. Yeah. So what, what we did with that group is I made them create the MOSFETs and we took it to Emory, irradiated and proton beam, and looked at the at what oh. level degradation starts. So, so it was a hands-on oh, course awesome. too. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know what else other word to use. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> Who do you meet next? Dan, maybe. Dan? I don't have the paper in here. Well, you want to take five minutes to circle yeah. the lab? I will show oh, you. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me get the paper. Thanks, Anna. Because I was late. No, no. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can find the Coefficient Life podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a topic you want to hear more about, follow us on social media and message us through Facebook. Remember, energy is everywhere. Use yours wisely.